Now you're probably asking, why is he wearing a bathrobe? Fair question. It's not a bathrobe, nor is it my pajamas. This is my jujitsu gi. Those of you who aren't regular viewers of the channel may not know that when I'm not studying, teaching, and reviewing Bible nerdy stuff, I teach Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I'm a black belt instructor at Hensel Gracie Charlotte, and I run a nonprofit here in Charlotte for refugee, immigrant, and lower income kids called Refugee Jitsu. Now, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is not easy. Getting a black belt is not easy. It took me around 12 years or so, and that's training multiple times a week, pretty much with no breaks. In fact, most people in Jiu-Jitsu quit somewhere around blue belt, which is the second of five belts. If you want to know, white, blue, purple, brown, black. The name Disciple Dojo, this whole ministry is structured around the idea of a dojo, a place where you come and learn and get challenged and get pushed and maybe have some ideas that you've held for a long time overturned. And that's all part of the process of getting better in any discipline, but particularly in the martial arts and also, I think, in biblical theology and Christian discipleship. Oftentimes, when people decide it's no longer worth it anymore to continue training, it's because they haven't seen the benefit in proportion to the amount of effort that they're putting in. But sometimes it's just because they have unrealistic expectations. They come in thinking in two or three weeks, I'm going to be choking people out and ready to step into the octagon and take on the world or whatever people's goals are when they start studying martial arts, particularly jujitsu. And they quickly find out how unrealistic those goals are and how long of a journey this is. And some, they just decide it's not worth it. But for the ones who do, the ones who stick it out day in, day out, through the bruises and the bruised egos, through the challenges, the hardship, the self-doubt, if they stick with it long enough, it changes their life. I see this every day on the mats. I see it in the kids that we work with. I see it in the adults that I teach. I see this all the time. I tell people, other than Jesus, jujitsu has changed more people's lives than any other thing I know of. But it does require putting in effort. You don't get better at jujitsu through osmosis. And you don't get better at biblical theology or discipleship through osmosis. So in this video, you are going to step into the dojo for a beginner's lesson. Not in jujitsu. You can't do that on camera. You have to be live for that. Although if you're in Charlotte, come and take a class sometime. I'd love to teach you how to tap somebody out. It's always fun. But this is going to be a white belt level basic introduction on how to read the Bible. Just like when somebody comes in to learn jujitsu, I don't throw them in class and we just immediately start going at it. I don't tell them to just look around and mimic what everybody else is doing until they pick it up. No, when I have a new student, my first priority is to orient them to the purpose of jujitsu the philosophy and the theory behind jiu-jitsu, and then some basic positions and movements that they need to know in order to then begin practicing jiu-jitsu. Most people are just given a Bible and said, read this, it'll change your life. Now, that can happen. God can change people's lives through nothing but a Bible and the Holy Spirit and them sitting alone in a hotel room or whatever the case may be. And in rare occasions, the written word itself has a transformative effect on their lives. And I'm not denying that that can happen. What I am saying, though, is that's not the way God intends it to normally happen. Just like the Ethiopian eunuch who was riding along, reading from Isaiah, not understanding what he's reading. And the Holy Spirit could have just beamed the knowledge right into his head, but he didn't. Instead, he brought Philip to him and had Philip explain and walk the eunuch official through what he was actually reading. And as a result, 
the gospel went to Egypt, where there's been an uninterrupted Christian presence ever since the first century. The normal way God communicates to his people is through the collective reading and studying and understanding of scripture in community. So, Let's say you've stumbled on this video because you want to understand how to read the Bible better, whatever level of biblical education you have. Here are Disciple Dojo's seven tips for how to read the Bible. Tip number one, you got to be able to read it. You have to get a translation that you can understand. Now, we have a whole video series here in our Bible for the Rest of Us course. I'll put a link in the description to that where we go in depth on this concept. But I will just break it down very succinctly. If you want to read and understand the Bible, you have to read a Bible that you can understand. And my tip goes even further than that. I think you should read three translations at least. Now, in this day and age of digital Bible apps, that's literally free. Download the YouVersion app and you have access at your fingertips to more Bible translations in more languages than any Christian in human history could ever imagine up until about 15 years ago. But don't just pick three translations at random or three that you like or that you've heard are good. Be very specific. Here is my suggestion. Whatever translation that you can read and understand the best or whatever translation is the one that your denomination or your tradition chooses to use primarily, by all means, use that translation. Unless it's some dishonest translation, unless it's some wacky translation like the Jehovah's Witness New World Translation or the Passion Translation, choose one that you can understand and let that be your main translation. On the spectrum of Bible translation, from the most rigid word-for-word uh, -word approach where they try to preserve the wording of the original text to the most fluid or dynamic approach where they try to convey the meaning of the original text in language or idioms or figures of speech that we use today, all translations fall somewhere in between those two poles. So I would say find one that's somewhere in the middle, NIV, New Revised Standard Version, Christian Standard Bible, Net Bible, any of those are fine. And make that your basic translation. Make that be the one you read from primarily, the one you take notes in. But then make sure you read one translation on each end of the spectrum a word-for-word -word translation, and a thought-for-thought -thought translation. My personal recommendation, have your baseline translation, whatever that is, and then for a, a more rigid or word-for-word, -word, use the King James, use the New American Standard Bible, any of those. Then on the freer thought-for-thought -thought side of things, use the New Living Translation or the Common English Bible or the Good News Bible. If you're doing that, reading in your main translation, and then just checking what you're reading and seeing how it reads in the other translations, that'll let you know whenever there's an issue that comes up that's worth digging a little deeper into. I would also say, pick a translation that's reputable, but that you are very unfamiliar with, and occasionally read out of it. This is a British translation. It's been updated. I think the REB is the newer version. But I got this at a used book sale. This one has the Apocrypha in it, which is one of the reasons that I like it. And it's nice because, one, it's British English, so the idioms are not exactly the same as American English. Two, it's just slightly different enough 
for me to not have the familiarity that I have when reading through these that I'm very familiar with. So that's just one example of kind of a odd man out translation that you can pull in every now and then just to get a fresh reading. Because when it comes to reading the Bible, familiarity breeds contempt, or at the very least, familiarity breeds sloppy reading. If you think you know a passage so well, if you're so used to a passage, then reading it in a fresh translation is a great way to kind of get a new look at an old friend. My second tip for reading and understanding the Bible, write in your Bible. Get a Bible that has lots of room in the margins where you can take notes. Marginalia go all the way back to the early manuscripts of the Bible. Marginalia or marginalia, however you want to pronounce it, it just means writing in the margins, making notes in the margins. We have a whole video here, I'll link it below, on why you should write in your Bible, where I really go into more detail about why this is important. But get a Bible you can write in. And that's where issues of typesetting come into play. Most compact, thin-line, double-column Bibles really don't have a lot of room for you to write in the margins because that's not what they're made for. They're made to be compact and thin and be able to carry around easily, which is great for portability. But in terms of reading, you don't always get the flow, particularly of Hebrew poetry, in a double-columned Bible that you do in a single-column Bible. And you also don't have nearly as much room to easily take notes, which is incredibly helpful. When you're reading the Bible, you should feel free to circle passages, to highlight, to underline, make little background notes that remind you of things that you probably wouldn't be able to call to mind just from memory. I do chiastic color coding in my Bibles. If there's a big chiasm, then I will color coordinate the lines so that I can visually and very quickly see on the page what's going on. Or in Exodus, there's whole chunks of directions and legislation and non-narrative material. So in my main teaching Bible that I read and study and teach from, I have those sections just outlined along the margin in a different color than the rest of the sections that are narrative. And what it does is it helps me at a glance, structurally be able to understand the book at the big picture. And that brings us to point number three for how to read and understand the Bible. Understand the big picture. This is how artists work. They do a loose sketch first, then they block in the shapes, the midtones, the highlights, the shadows, then they do the fine rendering. Well, do that when you study the Bible. Get the big picture first. There are a lot of ways that we help encourage that here at Disciple Dojo in our Bible for the Rest of Us course or in our video on the Old Testament in under an hour. We also have available in our store a coffee mug that has the Old Testament entirely laid out in timeline form. Shameless plug alert if you want to support this teaching ministry and get a nice fun little gift like this. Check out our Disciple Dojo store. We don't have sponsors here at the Dojo, so consider this the commercial read that you would normally get in any other podcast or TV show. Check out the Disciple Dojo store for all kinds of stuff, martial arts related, biblical studies related. See if there's something there that you may like. Anything purchased really helps this ministry out. But understanding the big picture, in this case, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and the flow, where the story's headed, helps you then read along with an idea of what you're coming to, so that everything you read isn't totally unexpected. That leads us to point number four 
of how to read and understand the Bible. The Bible was written as books, not verses. Bible, Biblia, it just means the books. There were no verses in the Bible until the 16th century. So that's important to understand when you start to read the Bible. Think about a long email that you get or a letter from someone. You wouldn't take that email or letter, divide up the individual paragraphs, and then put numbers by the sentences in each paragraph, and then just read a sentence at a time out of order randomly to get daily inspiration from that person. No, what would you do? You would read the letter. The whole thing was written for you to be read in the order that it was written in. Well, it's the same way with books of the Bible. The books of the Bible are self-contained literary units. Even the ones that are part of a larger corpus, like the books of the Torah. Yes, there is an overarching story that spans from Genesis to Deuteronomy, and there are literary links between those. But each book of the Torah is also literarily meant to be able to stand alone by itself, and it has its own message that the author wants the reader to take from that book. So if you want to read the Bible, think about reading books not verses. Those are arbitrary divisions that were put in by publishers centuries after the texts were actually written. Now, one thing that helps with this is getting a reader's version. For instance, here's a reader's version where the verse references are put out to the side of the page, just so you can kind of track along where you are, but there's no breaking of the text in and of itself. These have become much more popular probably over the past decade or so, and I think they're a great idea. I think they help us to see the letter of Paul to the Romans, for example, as a letter written to the Roman Christians. And there are themes that span the whole book and that tie in and threads that bind together and concepts that are introduced early that then get explained later. And all of these literary connections that we completely miss if we just break it up into these arbitrary chapters and verses. Now for longer books like the Psalms, the Psalms is a collection of poems. And those poems are typically divided according to the chapters that are found in your Bible. So in books like Psalms, reading by chapters isn't necessarily bad, as long as the chapters match the literary flow of the book itself. But especially in letters or in historical books, the chapters are meaningless. So let's get used to thinking of them that way, and you'll start to appreciate the book a lot better as a book. This brings us to tip five for understanding and reading the Bible. Genre is everything. Genre, the type of writing, the category of literature that you're reading determines how you read the text. You don't read J.R.R. Tolkien the same way you read Ikea instructions. They're completely different types of literature. Encyclopedia articles and fairy tales, two completely different types of literature. One is very factual and linear. One is highly stylized and symbolic. Genre determines how we read the Bible, not our a priori assumptions. The downside of Bibles being bound in one volume format is sometimes people forget that this is a library, not a book, and that there are actually 66 books. In this case, because it's got the Apocrypha, there are a few more. But there are numerous volumes spanning centuries and entire civilizations between the two covers of this one book. So if I'm reading a book of wisdom literature, I need to understand that it is fundamentally a different type of writing than the Gospels. And the Gospels are fundamentally a different type of writing than Torah legislation. And both of those are completely different 
than the prophetic literature. There are some Christians who teach you just read everything literally. No, you don't. And those Christians don't even read everything literally. There is a degree of non-literal all throughout the Bible. The type of writing you're reading should determine how you read it, not a priori assumptions. Whether it's crass literalism that fundamentalists or atheist skeptics of the Bible like to lift up and then knock down, or whether it's this fluid, symbolic, everything is metaphorical that Gnostic and pseudo-spiritual readers of Scripture like to dive into. Well, both of those are wrong. The genre of what we're reading should be what determines how we read that particular text. And the only way to know that is to know a little bit about the text we're reading. And that brings us to point number six for how to read and understand the Bible. And that is get some background information on those books. If I just pick up a thin-lined text-only edition of the Bible it's not going to tell me anything about what I'm reading. It's just giving me the text, which is fine if I know some background of what I'm reading. If I don't, then I can run into all sorts of issues of what we call eisegesis. Eisegesis means reading our own ideas into the text. That's not what we want to do. That's how every cult gets started. That's how every false doctrine gets created. Eisegesis, bad. What we want to do is exegesis. We want to bring meaning from the text. We want to derive what the author of the text intended the reader to understand as best we can and let that be what informs our understanding of the text. So how do you get background information? Well, there are a number of different ways because now you're moving into Bible study rather than just Bible reading and comprehension. And so I'm just going to stop short because that's pretty much all we do here at Disciple Dojo and all of our other videos is teach you how to do that digging and, and look at examples of it. But for the sake of this video, to keep it short, I would just say do three things. Number one, get a good study Bible that you can pull down for background information. Now, we have an entire playlist here with over 50 study Bibles that we've reviewed that's continuing to grow here at Disciple Dojo. So if you haven't subscribed to this channel already, don't write in the comments below, hey, have you reviewed the da 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 I mean, you can, I, I won't yell at you for it, but I'll probably say, well, actually, yes, that's in our Bible reviews playlist. Go check it out. So subscribe, bookmark this page, look around and see the resources that we've already put together. And those will help you determine what is a good study Bible for you. I have a video on my top seven study Bibles that I recommend. I'll link that in the description below. But everybody's different and people are looking for different things. And that's why we review these study Bibles here on the channel. So number two, get a Bible dictionary. Basically what a Bible dictionary is, it's, it's an encyclopedia of everything having to do with what you're going to find in the Bible. Most Bible dictionaries, most good ones will have entries on each book of the Bible that give a summary of that book. The background, authorship, date, general themes, that kind of stuff. Most good study Bibles, good study Bibles, will have an introduction to each book right at the beginning of that book that tells you some of that information as well. And if you want to go a little further and you have access, then pick up some commentaries. Now, commentaries can get really technical. I'm sitting here surrounded by a bunch of them that some of them I have a hard time even getting through, but they don't have to be. 
I'll just point out a couple that I think are helpful for the average Bible reader with no advanced theological training who just wants to understand the text a little better. First one is the Bible Speaks Today series. This is what older volumes looked like, and then they've been republished or re-released with this newer design, but this is the same series. These are small, very thin, very accessible, no scholarly jargon commentaries that walk you through the books of the Bible. And at the beginning of each, there is an introduction to that book that's substantial. In this case, Lamentations, the introduction is 56 pages. This one for Thessalonians is 21 pages. So those vary based on the book, but they give you basically the background of the book, the important things to look out for, as well as how other people, interpreters and readers across the spectrum, have interpreted the book throughout history. And that's really important because sometimes there are whole different ways of reading a book that we might not even know exist if we only come from one particular tradition. It's especially true in books like Revelation, Song of Solomon, or Genesis, but it's true to a lesser degree in other books as well. And the only way you're going to know that is if you have someone, a scholar who's devoted a significant chunk of their career to studying and teaching that particular book, lead you and guide you through those issues. Before we look at our final tip, there are two more resources that I want to mention that I think should be on everyone's shelf. How to read the Bible for all it's worth and How to Read the Bible Book by Book. How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth is one of the best books ever written on the concept of understanding scripture. They deal with everything we've touched on in this video and a whole lot more. And in fact, our course here at Disciple Dojo, Bible for the Rest of Us, was heavily inspired by this book when I used to teach in local church settings. I can't recommend this strongly enough. How to Read the Bible Book by Book is a companion volume that basically provides those introductions that the commentaries have all in one volume. So this is basically an introduction to every book of the Bible, book by book, and it just breaks the book up into sections and just says, hey, when you're reading this section, keep an eye out for this. When you're reading this section, keep an eye out for this. I'm not exaggerating. I think every Christian should have both of these on their shelf and use them regularly. And this brings us to the final tip, tip number seven for how to read and understand the Bible. And that is, it's we, not me. What I mean by that is the Bible is a communal book. It was written to communities. Very few books in the Bible were written to individuals. The vast majority of scripture was written collectively. And in Hebrew and Greek, a lot of the you's in the Bible, Y-O-U, are plural, not singular. So when you're reading passages in the Bible and it says, you are the temple of God, you should do this, you should do that. Those yous most of the time are plural. It's assuming that you're reading the Bible in community with other people. Every cult in the history of Christianity has started by one charismatic, persuasive person coming up with a radically new meaning to a biblical passage and then being able to convince other less knowledgeable people that their meaning is actually the true meaning that's been hidden and finally recovered. Every single one. The antidote to that is not more solitary Bible reading. It's more reading in community. And not just community horizontally in time, like the people who are alive and around us today, our fellow Christians and other Christian traditions, but vertically throughout time, digging into the past, looking at how these books 
Da Biblia, the books, how they have been interpreted by God's people in different places, in different languages, in different cultures, in different centuries. Good biblical interpretation is also church history. So that is my final tip. If you want to better understand the Bible, don't try to do it by yourself. It doesn't mean that you pick a preacher or a teacher that you like and you just follow them on YouTube or Instagram or podcast or any of those outlets and that just becomes your view. No. What you do is you find a community of people who also have the same desire to read and understand scripture better, whether it's in person or sometimes you're in a place where there's not physically other people like that in your area. At that time, then you use technology that we have to connect with people in areas where they are doing that. But regardless of how you're doing it, connect with people, spur one another on, push one another challenge one another, support one another, show things to one another, be willing to listen to one another with a truly open mind. Let's bring this full circle and talk about jujitsu. In the early 90s, most people in America had not heard of jujitsu. And there were all of these different styles of martial arts. I've trained a number of them over the years. I've been doing martial arts since I was about eight years old. All of the different styles of martial arts thought that they were enough, that their style had all they needed. So the boxers thought boxing was the way to go. The karate guys thought karate reigned supreme. The kung fu guys thought that kung fu was all you needed. The kickboxers thought that boxing and some kicking added in. That's enough. And what happened was jujitsu came on the scene in America. And this family of Brazilians showed the entire world that if you don't know how to defend yourself when somebody closes the distance and connects with you and takes you to the ground, all of your other training is 100% useless without that missing piece. And since then, martial arts have evolved and some people were so enamored by that ground aspect of jujitsu that that's all they did. And then people from striking arts had to come in and say, actually, if you can't get the fight to the ground, you are going to be just as disadvantaged as somebody who doesn't have any ground skills who is on the ground. So there was this cool interaction between martial arts that didn't exist when I was growing up. Everything was siloed and people followed their own tradition. Now, most jujitsu schools that you go to blend other martial arts into the curriculum because they realize that the goal is to create well-rounded martial artists that are capable of defending themselves and other people in various situations, regardless of the circumstances that they're facing. But that could never happen if people stuck only to their preferred style that they grew up with, and if they trained by themselves, if they didn't have sparring partners coming in and pushing them to get better. If you show up to a jiu-jitsu class and you're the only one there, you're not going to learn jiu-jitsu. You may do some movements and some drills, and there's ways you can kind of, you know, get a workout in, but you have to spar with other people in order to get better. And I would suggest it's the same thing with our biblical studies and our discipleship. We have to interact with other believers and with non-believers. We have to be willing to have our ideas challenged by Christians from other traditions and non-Christians. We have to read scripture in community rather than off by ourselves somewhere. Now, in the future, if this video warrants it, and maybe enough of you leave a comment below saying you'd like to see it, I will do videos like this 
with tips for reading and studying and understanding each book of the Bible. So if that's something you'd like to see, let me know. The only way I know is by you leaving me a comment and saying, hey, yeah, I'd love to see a video on this or that. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, if you haven't already, do our courses here at Disciple Dojo. They're entirely free. They're all on our website. I'll put a link right here across the bottom of the screen. Go there and you can do you, your small group, your Sunday school class, even your whole church can do these studies that we've put together over the past 10, 15 years here at Disciple Dojo. And if you are a church leader and you would like to take your people deeper in their understanding of scripture, reach out to me through our contact page. I would love to come and teach in person. That's my favorite thing to do. Teaching the Bible in person is way better than just sitting here in the studio looking at a camera. So if your church would like to offer some biblical jujitsu, let's talk. Okay, that's all for this video. Um, go read your Bibles.